the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Mishy's already laughing. That's not fair. lectionary works, uh, half of me resists it because the passages we read come in as part of whole literary units, and I want to read the whole letter or the whole book and understand it rather than understand one small part of it, and then to put that in relation to all sorts of other little bits, you know, diachronically throughout scripture, that grates against me a little bit. I just want to read all of Genesis or all of Luke and understand that. On the other hand, uh, over the last probably five or six years, I've been learning how much scripture is busy interpreting itself. So as, as Paul is writing to the Ephesians, he's thinking about the gospel story, how it reinterprets what the prophets were saying and how they were interpreting the law and the history of Israel and how it all goes back to Genesis so that the scripture is interpreting scripture. And as that comes more and more alive to me, sometimes the lectionary just does wonders like tonight. <coughs> And tonight changed my mind about the book of Job. <coughs> I've been kind of going, going back and forth. Um, jo Job's a very um, odd book in terms of how it's structured. The first chapter or two on the, uh, the fir um, begin with sort of this heavenly court scene where, where the angels come and assemble in sort of God's throne room and Satan comes and God taunts Satan and says, so uh, what have you been doing? And then and he says, have you noticed Job? And then th that sort of draws, uh, puts a spotlight on Job, and Satan says, well, challenge accepted. Then we have 40-some-odd uh, books uh, or chapters on Job's experience with what Satan has done to him. It's a very intimate, personal experience between him and his friends. And then <coughs> God answers Job's demand for, for justice, for a trial, and, and God comes and basically says, I'm here, and that's enough for Job. And then it all ends with a, um, everything is either restored to Job or restored in double fashion. But we never get back to the heavenly throne room. So I'm sort of left wondering, how much am I supposed to use chapter one to interpret the rest of the book? Is it primarily uh, an event in the life of this one man as he suffers for no particular fault of his own and then comes to know God's presence in the midst of that suffering? Or is this primarily a large-scale political picture to do with God and the angels and Satan in which one man's story is bound up? And I kind of go back and forth because it really changes how you interpret the book as a whole if you emphasize chapter one or if you emphasize the rest of the book. And it's, not hard, to, it's hard, to not it is hard to not emphasize one of them because of how much it changes the landscape. These readings, though, I think, really push us in the direction of emphasizing the role of chapter one in Job and teaching us to think in a larger frame of reference about the whole Christian faith. <coughs> Daniel, in the passage that we read tonight, tells about all sorts of beasts. And when the prophets start talking that way, I'm about as lost as I get when I'm reading scripture. I have no clue what's going on. Uh, we have a lion, and it has angel's wings, and they get plucked off, and then the lion is made to stand upright like a man and talks like a man, and I think, <laughs> okay. <coughs> 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 
But some amazing things happen right after that. So here's where I sort of disobey the lectionary. I keep on reading. <clears throat> after all that happens comes this incredible passage of scripture, which is super important. Daniel says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. And that's completely reminiscent of Job chapter one. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. The wheels were burning fire. When you hear wheels, you think Ezekiel. Right, so we're drawing on prophetic literature and on Job, and all, all sorts of things are happening here. With So I, I think we ought to let lump together Daniel, Job, and Ezekiel all in one to understand this passage. And, um, and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Streams issuing from thrones. Uh, that's reminiscent of Revelation 22, but also thinking about Genesis 1, 2, and 3, where the creation of Eden and all these streams flow out from it and water the lands around it. There's this notion of the justice of the right ruler and the way that that nourishes the nations and the land around it. <coughs> all that's coming together in this really rich passage. And thousands and thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And after that, the beast was killed from the passage that we read. <coughs> and then we're supposed to wonder, um, you know, what, what's, what's going on? What, what was this vision? And an angel, I believe it is, says, comes and, and, and says to him, uh, gives him the interpretation. It says, ah, those were four kings. Now, that would have been a lot simpler for me if it just talked about four kings instead of all these beasts rising up from the ocean and wings and things like that. Daniel has this vision of these great beasts, which are actually kings, so it's a political vision. And the answer to it, which happens in between the vision and the explanation, is this other vision that happens about the Son of Man. And the, and the Son of Man is situated in a, in a way that's reminiscent of the book of Job. So there's this big, strange set of visions that tie together a whole bunch of passages in the Old Testament and this son of man. <coughs> okay, that, that sort of sets up the, the, the readings that we have. When we switch to the psalm, the psalm's interesting. The first five verses or so are all, um, they're nice and, and pleasing. Like, I, I want these five verses, please. Um, I want to praise God in the assembly of the godly. Um, I want to rejoice in my king. I want to praise his name uh, with dancing. That'll be a stretch, <clears throat> but I think I'll be able to do that in heaven. And we'll make melody to him with tambourine and lyre. Okay. Guitar probably fits in there somewhere, and I'll learn how to do that better. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Okay, great. That all sounds wonderful. In verse 6, it starts getting interesting. Let the high praises of God be in their throats. Okay, great. And two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind the kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. <coughs> That's reminiscent of one of my favorite lines from Lord of the Rings uh, as, as the writers of Rohan, uh, and they sang as they slew for the joy of battle was upon them. 
we ha- it's, it's a really different mood in that second half of the psalm. Everything to do with judgment and casting down the kings and the nations and, 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 and iron and fetters and judgment. So what seemed sort of nice, we praise God, all of a sudden again became very political. We are, this is an act of judging the nations and we're involved, which fits with the earlier vision from Daniel with these, all these different beasts and then they're slain. And they're all about kings, kings that are going to be overthrown and judged and they will have no more place in the world around us. So Psalm 149 is also going with this very political vision. (coughs) Let's look at Ephesians. (coughs) Ephesians at first seems to just be talking about an an inheritance, a hope that we have in Christ. And those words repeat over and over and over again in the second half of Ephesians 1. There's this, this hope we have because there's an inheritance we have. And... Yay. (laughs) I'm all about inheritances. They sound wonderful, but I'd like to have mine later than sooner, please, because I love my parents. (coughs) But um, my my grandfather passed away a few years ago. Um, Should his house sell, uh, we could receive a small inheritance, from what I hear. I have no idea what that would mean. Uh, Maybe it just means we get to bring ribs to potluck. I don't know. (coughs) Um, But an inheritance sounds like a great thing. So what happened to this political theme that our readings are working with. The last half or the last portion uh, uh, of the chapter is where it gets interesting. Um, We're talking about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So we're talking about the great might and power of God raising uh, Christ so that he can ascend and be seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Now's where we pick up our theme. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which, it his, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So every power, principality, every mode of rule or dominion, all of it is under the feet of Christ, who has ascended and sit, is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And I think the basic line of thought here is, if you can't die, every form of power and authority has nothing on you. So Christ now, the one who made all things, is now over all things. He has been established in power and authority over every nation, people, kingdom, all of it. He's sitting on his throne and they're all under his feet. So this inheritance, this hope that we have as the body of Christ is the inheritance of rule and dominion that Psalms 149, Psalm 149 is talking about where we're wielding a sword and establishing justice and judging the peoples. It's a stranger inheritance than I thought, than I often think uh, about it being. It's an inheritance to, to rule and, and judge. Lest you have an overly negative view of judgment, though, uh, I think it might help if you think about it, not simply in terms of punishing those who deserve punishment, but a broader construal of justice going back to the book of Judges. To be a judge is to help the people walk in the ways of justice and righteousness. That includes negative things, uh, punishments, um, but is way bigger than that in Scripture. 
So all of these passages have this big vision to do with powers and principalities and nations and kings and rulers and judgment and sword and iron fetters and all these things. And our inheritance fits right into this because we have been united with the Son of Man who is seated at, seated at the right hand of God and our inheritance is to be a part of his body the way that he accomplishes these things in the age to come and that the, the present age now gets to have hints and whispers and witnesses of as we begin to walk in the way of faith anticipating the inheritance we will receive. Now how do the Beatitudes fit into this? <coughs> At first, the Beatitudes sound or seem um, myopic in a, in a very tiny picture. It feels like the beginning of the Lord of the Rings to refer to it twice. Wow. <coughs> I didn't plan that. It just happens. Um, it, it sounds like we've gone from this big picture of Middle Earth and how to establish justice in it to this. Now we're talking uh, uh, about Longbottom Leaf and, and, and Hobbit culinary customs. Um, they're, they're, they're little, little tiny things about one, about one person or about a poor person, a hungry person, someone who's sad. It's a really small picture. Now, it's a potent small picture. I'm not trying to dismiss it in any way, but it's very narrow in its scope, <coughs> it seems. Blessed are you who are poor, college students, for yours is the kingdom of God. But if you get a well-paying job in the long run, you're not blessed anymore, of course. Better to stay in college. <laughs> Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. And then he turns around and says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. There's a haunting thought. Woe to you who are full now. Woe to us after potluck, for you shall be hungry. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. <coughs> so there's this very small picture nestled among all these great pictures. And great isn't necessarily good, and small isn't necessarily bad. One just has this huge scope of vision to do with history and the nations and justice. And the other one is very narrow, looking at blessings and curses for sad, hungry people and happy, full people. <coughs> the key, I think, that ties it all together is, this n is, the n is the point in verse 22, and I left off right before saying this point. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man is an immensely powerful notion that we see going back to Daniel 7. Who is the Son of Man? The Son of Man is the one who came as a second Job. And God said, look at him. And Satan said, challenge accepted. And what did that son of man do? He walked in the way of Job, in the way of suffering, taking our sorrows and sufferings upon himself, Isaiah 53 being fulfilled in this second Job. And he didn't, but this time God didn't say, don't touch his body or don't touch his life. This time, no holds barred. So this time, Job, the second Job, 
Christ is also the second Adam. Christ is a lot, the second a lot of things. But this time, the second Job suffered and died for us, not with his friends, but abandoned by his friends. But the second Job comes back to life, receiving a twofold blessing. And the blessing is one that includes this large-scale political picture of now every power and authority is under my feet because the one who made things is now an authority over all things. So blessed are we when people hate us and exclude us and revile us and spurn our name as evil on account of that son of man in whom we are a member and whose inheritance we share. That's when we're blessed for those things. Not any other time. So this is not talking <coughs> about, hey, uh, if, if, if you have a lot of money to tithe on, be careful, God's, God's curse might be upon you. Or if, if the barbers bought it and, and Mary Beth brought a particularly um, amazing feast of, of smoked meats and we're all full afterward and just rejoicing in, in how good that meal was. We're not closer to being cursed for that. I think Jesus' sermon here on the Mount is falling right in line with all these different passages in Scripture, some of which we've read tonight, that are saying, hey, this is the work of the Son of Man in whom we have a share. And our calling is not to think myopically about what I deserve or what I get or, 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 or fight for these different things. Because there's a way bigger picture that w which we're using to think about all of reality. There's this bigger picture that informs Christian ethics. And the bigger picture is a massively political one. And I'm not big on politics, but I just couldn't help it because of all these chapters that we just read. <coughs> now, that was about as far as I'd gotten in my thinking. I was just excited about that uh, until I had a little bit of time to sit here uh, this evening before the service started. And I thought, I don't know what the implications of all this uh, would, it would be. Uh, I just think that the passages are teaching us. They're teaching us to think oddly politically. And then about eight illustrations came to mind or implications came to mind. I'm going to walk you through some of them really briefly. Suffering. These passages are inviting us to think about suffering differently. Combine David's suffering at the persecution of Saul with Job's suffering. Lump them together. There's a way of thinking about certain kinds of suffering as happening in a way bigger political arena that don't matter as much to us if we know the larger story. Job didn't know the larger story. He never heard it. Heard it. And we often don't find out the details of the larger story either. But these passages invite us to think, yeah, but what if, even though my experience happens to be like Job's, and I don't know what the bigger picture is, sometimes there's a, a, a very much bigger picture that can shape and inform how we experience suffering, and that could allow us to celebrate in it. That would be one possibility. How we think of justice. There's a way of thinking of justice in terms of what's fair and what I ought to get given the rules. Thinking about establishing large-scale justice within communities, cities, states, and countries, that's a way bigger job. But that's the kind of thing that the gospel is inviting us to think about. The kind of justice that flows from a throne and waters a whole nation. Now that doesn't mean we're all called to run for office, for heaven's sakes. Uh, and, I, and I wouldn't wish that on my dearest friend, but uh, it might, we might be called to such a thing. 
we should care about justice and not just the justice of someone who happens to be a victim in a given circumstance, even though we should care about that. We should care about something a lot bigger. We should care about the kind of justice that waters a whole nation because that's the vision we get in these passages. How we think of prayer. Um, this was a challenge for me, uh, but thinking about prayer as something that's happening on a larger scale rather than just my immediate needs or concerns. We're talking about the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God who rules over the nations, and prayer could be a participation in that level of activity. What that exactly looks like, I don't claim to have expertise, but the idea seems present. Okay. How we think about the Gospels. Uh, it's easy to think about the Gospels in terms of Jesus speaking and relating to individuals. But this is the Son of Man fulfilling the vision of Daniel 7 amidst the Roman occupation of Israel. There's a really political reading of the Gospels to be done, emphasizing the way that Jesus is coming in as the rightful king. I could make another Lord of the Rings reference, but I won't. <coughs> uh, and uh, the list uh, from there goes on and on. There's a way of thinking about the Christian life fairly myopically as a matter of our sin, our hurts, our joys, and our hope. All that belongs. And the Bible does speak to that. But there's something bigger going on in these passages to do with the Son of Man establishing power and authority over the peoples and the nations. And our inheritance is to participate in him and in that work. And there's a challenge there. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit.